Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Blair Miller is a community advocate that I've had the pleasure of knowing since 2013. Originally from White Plains, New York, Blair made her way to California to attend UC Berkeley for graduate school, where she earned her master's in city and regional planning, housing, and economic development. Very few of us can point to a single event and say with confidence that it sparked an interest in what would define our careers, but Blair is the exception. On a trip from Los Angeles to Santa Barbara, she saw houses on hillsides and asked why. This question shaped her desire to study urban planning and our city is the better for it. After attending UC Berkeley, Blair worked in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors, applying her early grassroots canvassing skills toward primarily multifamily and affordable housing. When she moved from Oakland to Pasadena in 2012, she quickly embraced her new hometown and began her string of service on our city commissions. First on the Transportation Advisory Commission, or TAC, as tax representative on design review, and eventually on the planning commission. Blair is passionate about making Pasadena a truly multimodal city. This led her to join the Complete Streets Coalition, an advocacy group here in Pasadena that works to promote projects and policies that serve cyclists, pedestrians, and public transportation users. As you will hear, Blair recently joined the board of Heritage Housing Partners, a Pasadena-based nonprofit founded in 1998 to promote long-term affordable home ownership through the preservation of existing homes and the construction of new ones. This new position is a perfect fit for her skills and her interest in making housing accessible. When I joined TAC in 2013, I didn't know what to expect from the commission itself or me as a commissioner. However, Blair served as a role model of a selfless city commissioner who was knowledgeable, approachable, and hardworking. I am genuinely grateful for having had the opportunity to serve alongside her as she represents the type of true advocate that our city needs more of. So without further delay, my conversation with Blair Miller. Blair, thank you very much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we've known each other for about eight years. We were just talking about that before we started recording. But I actually know very little but a bit about you and why you got involved in urban planning and community activism. And so I thought we would start there. So can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got interested in development, urban planning, and housing? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. Um, yeah, there's actually a very specific point in time that I can point to and say that's where my interest in these issues started. Um, I wasn't living in California at the time I was visiting, and I was driving between, I think, LA and Santa Barbara, and I looked up and there were houses on these hillsides. And I was like, why are there houses on those hillsides? How did that happen? And then I decided that I wanted to go to grad school and try to find the answer to the question. And I didn't know that there was such a thing as urban planning or city planning um, when I started trying to figure out what program would answer that question. And found that pretty quickly. And then kind of by coincidence, wound up going to planning school at UC Berkeley, which is how I wound up in California. 
So who are some of your early influences that shaped your values and desire to be so involved in your community? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there were great professors at planning school, um, one in particular named John Landis, who taught housing and community development. And I think that I came out, well, and I came out of a community organizing background. So during college and after college, I had worked as a, a canvas director for the public interest research groups, the PERGs, in Connecticut and then in Colorado. And so I was already trained in kind of Alinsky style organizing. And then coming out of planning school, my first position was with an affordable housing developer where it was very easy to see how my community organizing skills could be applied in trying to place affordable housing in a community. Um, People had a lot of questions, people had a lot of concerns, and that kind of hands-on, literally door-to-door work that I had been doing for the environmental group um, really came in handy when I was then trying to advocate for affordable housing. So where are you from originally? White Plains, New York, uh, Westchester County, just north of New York City. And then um, during college, my mom moved out west to Idaho, and I followed to Colorado after college, worked for Colorado Perg. And then that's where I was when I decided to apply to grad school and kind of came down to Ithaca and Berkeley and decided the, to go with Berkeley. So that's how I wound up. And I've been in California ever since. Thank you for sharing that. So I thought we'd shift over to talking a little bit about your time on several of passing his commissions. You've served on some of the city's most important commissions, design review as a member of TAC, TAC itself, and planning commission. What have been some of the greatest challenges being on those commissions and What are some lessons that you've taken away from each of those experiences? Yeah, um, just for your audience, TAC is Transportation Advisory Commission. That was the first one I joined. When I moved down to, I was in the Bay Area for a long time after leaving grad school at Berkeley and then met my husband who works in the film industry and lives in Pasadena. And we started dating long distance. And then I came down, uh, moved down and at the beginning of 2012. And um, right away, I knew I wanted to get involved. Um, and so I applied to be on um, the Transportation Advisory Commission TAC and was actually placed on TAC by Jackie Robinson as the representative for CD1, even though I lived in CD2 at the time. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really wonderful experience. Got to learn all about Pasadena's transportation, some about their public works. And I think the I think the biggest challenges though are so Pasadena has a a lot of commissions. It has I think somewhere in the order of 25 or 30 commissions. And most of them don't actually have any authority, they're advisory. On the one hand it's a great system because it takes sort of direct pressure off the council and allows people of venue to where their voices can be heard and where they can study issues before they go to council. So it allows council and staff to kind of take the temperature of the community, kind of have hearings, literally public hearings about issues um, where things kind of get worked out before it goes up to the council level. So it's a great system, especially for a place like Pasadena, which is so active and so many people are so involved. But one of the challenges is that um, when you're on an advisory commission, you are just advisory. So sometimes that can be a little frustrating and you have to remind yourself that, nope, this is advisory and they will take your advice and they will either follow it or not. And that's the end of your kind of ability to exert any influence on it. 
um, at least at the commission level. So I very much enjoyed being on both design review and planning because those commissions actually have some authority. Um, and that's a very special position to begin to be trusted with that authority. And I find that, you know, the more seriously you take it and the more time and energy you put into it, the better the experience is. Um, so that's one lesson is um, if you're going to sign up for any commission, but particularly the ones with authority, you really have to be prepared to invest the time. I mean, design commission was something like up to 20 hours a month, which is really a lot when you've got a full-time job as well. But it was um, extremely fulfilling. Um, design commission in particular, because you could literally go out and see the results of your decisions in, in, in 3D in real life, eventually. It t- takes a while, but you you know, can literally walk around or bike around or drive around Pasadena and go, yeah, I helped approve that. Yeah. Remember that, that little piece of that and we changed it and now it looks different? Yeah. So that's just an incredible ability to help sort of shape what Pasadena looks like. So I was very privileged to be part of that. And then planning obviously has kind of the bigger picture, like the overall what Pasadena looks like um, and feels like as we grow over time. And so it was great to be involved in that commission um, for a year and a half and particularly right at the beginning um, was able to help vote for the inclusionary housing ordinance, which was really good. Um, It's kind of an example ordinance um, so that was a special experience when, on planning commission. You kind of talked about it a little bit, but if someone was interested in serving on a commission, and you mentioned that Pasadena has 20 plus commissions, I remember having to do a presentation where I tried to calculate that number and com- compare it to Glendale and Burbank, and we are significantly larger than any other city our size. But um, if someone was interested in serving, what guidance would you give them? What's some advice that you would share? Yeah, just to recognize that it's a position of privilege and to take it seriously and invest as much as possible. Also to pay very careful attention to the people who testify in front of the commission, either by um, speaking or sending in uh, written commentary. That's kind of the point is to sort of address people's concerns from the vantage point as a commissioner. And um, so definitely to make the time to kind of read everything that comes in and listen to everybody who's speaking. And then, you know, we have a generally, I think, a very respectful tone among commissioners in every commission that I've been on. And I think that's an important tradition to uphold. Um, So to, you know, come in trying to um, make sure that there's an effort towards respect for fellow commissioners and building consensus for sure. Very good advice. I think what's unique about your career is that you've worked on both in both the private and the public sectors. You know, you've worked on a high rise developments in San Francisco. You've worked on affordable housing projects, been a project manager for the city of Oakland's redevelopment agency, and now work for the city of Los Angeles trying to reposition city owned property for new uses such as affordable housing. Recently, uh, Mayor Gordo created a housing task force. As someone who has worked on both sides and has experience in affordable housing, what advice would you give them and what do you think is the first step we need to take to help address the housing crisis in Pasadena? Unfortunately, you know, so I spend and have spent a long time now thinking about housing issues, working on housing issues. And sometimes I feel like the harder I've worked and the more deeply involved I've been, the less I know. So, you know, I don't feel like I have 
the answers. I, I do feel that we have a fundamental supply of housing near jobs imbalance. And that is part of what's underlying um, our uh, housing affordability crisis. We also have historic patterns of inequity, including redlining and the freeway developments. And those have contributed to loss of generational wealth over time. And, you know, those are kind of major issues to grapple with that require resources way beyond what the city of Pasadena can bring through its own general fund. Um, So it really is critical for the, you know, state and federal governments to step up in terms of resources. And then, you know, we have the issues of um, political will, which is very difficult. I think some of what happens with housing is counterintuitive. Um, And so I think, and I also think that there's sort of growing pains. Like I think we look ahead and we could see where smart transit-oriented development across a region could help improve the amount of housing supply to match the demand based on where the jobs are. Again, we could build way out in the desert, and then we've got people making two hours commutes, contributing to our traffic congestion, poor air quality, and environmental degradation. Or we can try to build up near transit um, and and bring that as a solution. Um, But for people who are living here, there's a lot of concern about quality of life. And I truly understand the concerns, but also feel that sometimes these fears are potentially unfounded. And it's really hard to tell people that their fears are unfounded because they're their fears and they're their experiences and they're their perceptions. And it's really hard to say, nope, I don't agree with that fear or experience or perception. So it's, um, it's a really tricky issue. And, um, I think that, you know, you asked what the first step is. I think the first step is trying to figure out how to meet the regional housing needs allocation through our housing element and, you know, taking advantage of the fact that we have a lot of light rail in Pasadena and trying to, you know, focus as much opportunities for development around those stations as we can. So those are the first steps I think I would take to address it. You've been very involved with the Passing a Complete Streets Coalition. Why was it important for you to get involved with such a group, and how has it evolved since it was created? Uh, the group is relatively sim- stable since it's been created. It's always been kind of a all-volunteer group of maybe 10 to 20 at any given time committed folks. You know, We've had people move away. We've had people join. Um, we're always kind of around the same size. I think it's an impressive group because I think we get an amazing amount of things done, even though we're all volunteer. <laughs> we have some very smart and talented people who really made great efforts to uh, stay on top of all sorts of transportation issues. Um, I think we all got involved really for kind of two reasons. One is that we're all very concerned about road safety for pedestrians, for bicyclists, for all the vulnerable road users. And I think we're also very concerned about climate change. Um, that seems to motivate almost everybody in our group kind of at a fundamental level and wanting people to have opportunities to move around safely without a car. That includes active transportation, like the walking and biking I was talking about, and also transit. So that's why it was important for me to get involved. Looking back on the past year and a half, 
COVID has altered how we see each other and our city. We saw people driving less for a time, walking and biking more, which is a great thing. And we also saw parking spaces turned into public seating areas for restaurants, something that you've been very involved with over the years. As we try to reclaim a sense of normalcy, and we're recording this on June 15th, which is the official reopening day for the state of California. How do you think we can embrace some of these cultural and land use changes and make them more permanent? I think it's very exciting. It's really hard to talk about good things coming out of a pandemic because so many people died or had got sick or have long symptoms and were economically challenged. However, there are I'm not the first person to observe that this opportunity for us to hit a reset button has fundamentally altered what we think of as possible. I mean, working for any company or for me, for the city of Los Angeles, we went from telecommute never to potentially telecommute all the time. It's just a remarkable transformation in a very short time. And I see that these other things that happened during COVID enabled us to envision some possibilities, such as converting parking or travel lanes into outdoor dining, and that it did not have the predicted uh, apocalyptic effect on traffic. And, you know, that people especially in the beginning of the pandemic, we're just out using the streets for, not for cars, but for people, um, as the Complete Streets Coalition talks about a lot. And how to maintain those opportunities um, is definitely, I think, very exciting. And I think how we can do it is just saying, hey, now we've proved it's possible. How do we get together and try to make some of these changes permanent in a way that satisfies everybody's concerns, but I'm excited that at least it proved it was possible. You have been a very strong advocate of the passing the bicycle plan and the roseways. And I think we can give you and your efforts a lot of credit for that. Uh, currently, the city is engaged in passing the walks. Again, we're recording this actually an hour before uh, there's a meeting about passing the walks, which is a project designed to develop an updated pedestrian plan, which we haven't had for a very long time. What are your expectations of this project and how can people get involved? Yeah, so thanks for asking. Um, so you can sign up on the city's website to get notified. We're very excited about this updated pedestrian plan. And, you know, my expectation of this project, the way that things get funded, and this is actually something I'm not sure if your audience will be interested in, but I think it's important for people to know. So I'm going to put it in. The way that transportation projects get funded in the city of Pasadena is actually not as uh, straightforward as we prioritize our projects and spend money on priority one and then priority two. And the reason is because very high percentage of transportation-related projects are funded by outside grants, which are usually competitive. And we never know quite in advance which projects are going to be the competitive ones for any given grant or other funding opportunity. So we have to have a lot of projects that have some had some work done on them, 
kind of ready to go, as you would say, maybe not fully designed, but at least planned. And so that's why these kinds of planning efforts are so important, because that gives us the foundation that we need to then be competitive for these financing sources. Very little of the general fund in Pasadena actually goes to transportation projects. Um, We have to find these outside sources. And so doing something like this Pasadena Walks project is very exciting because that will put us in a good position to then um, be more competitive for funding down the road. So I'm really excited about it. It's almost like a chicken and the egg. It starts with having a plan like you talked about and then using that plan as an opportunity to go out and solicit grants that would eventually come back to the city. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sometimes the perfect grant shows up, but the highest ranked project on the list is number 18. But then number 18 becomes number one because that's where the financing is. So this will just get kind of more and better projects onto the list. You've mentioned this or you've kind of touched upon it a little bit, but Pasadena is a very interesting place, as we both know, because it has some very conservative elements and it has some very progressive forces. You've seen this firsthand as a commissioner, and we saw this come to the forefront with the Orange Grove Road Diet and other projects around town. How do you think we can bridge some of this divide in our city? I think it goes back to what I was saying, which is it's very difficult to challenge people's lived experience, right? Because that's what you know, and that's what you trust, and that's completely fair. But a lot of what we're trying to do is trying to kind of show people what some alternative ways of conceiving of these issues are in order for us to have be able to find common ground. So the best example when it comes to road safety is speed. Everybody wants our roads to be safer and nobody wants to drive slower. And speed is speed and distracted driving are the two things that are at the root of almost every road safety incident. And that's not just road safety for vulnerable road users like pedestrians and bicyclists, though they obviously uh, suffer more in an entanglement with a car and a collision with a car. But it's for people who are driving, too, that speed and distracted driving um, can cause you know, injuries or death. So it's this, it's hard to convince people to slow down, even if everybody agrees. And that's part of it because people don't quite understand that speed is the problem. It's like you're sitting in traffic complaining about traffic, but you you are the traffic, right? You're, you're the traffic. So, you know, it's it's trying to get people to kind of shift their thinking and and because everybody wants safer streets. Everybody wants cleaner air. The vast majority, even when you're talking about conservative forces and conservative elements in Pasadena, you're generally not talking about climate change deniers, right? So generally, everybody wants the same things. It's just a question of, of explaining how we get there and explaining how we get there may require some behavior changes and may require some counterintuitive thinking. And that's where it's really hard. Um, Because both of those things are really, really hard. Where do you think education plays in that? That's a great, outstanding question that I have. Um, All I know is that I'm sure we could be doing a lot better. And it would be fascinating to really bring in the best of what we know of in terms of 
psychology and nudges and, you know, all that Malcolm Gladwell stuff to try to change people's behavior. And I know that we've never really done that yet. But, you know, the other thing that we like to talk about is that there's only so much you can do about education and behavior change in terms of the individual. The other thing that you have to do in terms of road safety is engineering. You have to engineer the streets to encourage the behavior that you want to see. So, you know, if there's a straight, open road with wide lanes, people naturally go faster. That is just the way it works. If the lanes are narrower, if there are more um, obstacles or stops or perception that speed might be dangerous, people will absolutely naturally slow down. And so it's that... and. When you think about Vision Zero, which is this concept that we can reduce our uh, serious injuries or fatalities to zero, there are several different elements to it, but fundamentally the most important is the engineering element. And you had mentioned um, in the notes the um, dispute over the Orange Grove road diet, and that was the point, is that Orange Grove is, uh, especially in its repaved state, is an incredibly nice road to drive fast on. Even if you're not intending to drive fast, you just start going and all of a sudden you realize you're over the speed limit, which is already 40 miles an hour, which is one of the highest in the, in the city. And the point of reducing the number of lanes on Orange Grove was less actually about the bike lanes and way more about reducing the speeds on Orange Grove. And so that's disappointing that that was A, misunderstood and also didn't happen um, because Orange Grove... It's very dangerous. There have been a lot of collisions on Orange Grove over time and also since it was repaved. So it's very concerning. When we were on TAC together, uh, one thing that I really admired about you is that you had this vision to push for signature projects like the Union Street Cycle Track, but we're also very pragmatic and looking for smaller ways to improve transportation conditions, like for walking, cycling, et cetera. So I thought that was a really kind of a really important ability to cycle between both of those uh, approaches. At a time when budgets are stretched, what types of projects do you think would have the greatest impact in Pasadena? So glad you asked this question because I absolutely have an answer. Paint. <laughs> I think we can do so much with paint. And I also think we can do a lot with quick build temporary uh, projects as well, like demonstration projects, right? With cones or bollards. So when I say paint, what I mean is that one of the things that the Complete Streets Coalition has been pushing for a long time is an integrated, a network of streets, low stress streets, where bicycles can travel in relative safety that are connected around the city with streets that have more intensive infrastructure, right? Because you eventually will get to some of the larger streets and you have to connect up. But a huge amount of what would be very effective can be done with paint and signage. So the Roseways network was sort of partially implemented. There's signs up. There's not a good map, either in paper or online or in Google. So there kind of doesn't exist a really good map to promote it. And it's actually an incomplete network and it actually needs to be tweaked a little bit to be more effective. Um, so it's kind of a work in process. And then there are these um, greenways 
bike boulevards, north, south, four of them that are um, an existing project in the city that are going to cost, I don't know, a million and a half each. But it's possible to look at implementing them as quick built while we look for the funding and also sort of to test out the concept. So I think that those are the kinds of opportunities that we need to look at and that I think we could be doing a great deal more. And the last one I'll mention is um, contrasting sharrows. So there are certain streets in the city like Mountain that are designated as um, where bicycles can, um, I mean, bicycles are always allowed to be operating as a vehicle on the street, but where there's something called a sharrow, which is supposed to remind the driver that the bicycle has the option to use the full road. And, you know, I was just in the Bay Area and they have green boxes with the white sharrows on them and it stands out tremendously more. Um, and again, just paint. Um, but I think that paint can really send a message. And um, I think we should look at using paint a lot more. You know, having served on city commissions and being involved with groups like Complete Streets Coalition, you know, you've taken an approach of working from both within and outside to advance meaningful changes. What approach have you found to be the most effective or more effective within or outside or do you think policy changes require a combination of the two? Yeah, I mean, I feel very strongly that it requires a combination of the two. And that comes both from my advocacy work and sitting on commissions in the city of Pasadena and also from my employment for the city of Los Angeles. Because I see really clearly how constituent groups can um, create incentives for elected officials to move on issues that they would not necessarily always have moved on. Um, but I also feel like it's critically important for the advocacy groups to understand how decisions get made. Otherwise they're going to waste their time, everybody else's time and a lot of time spinning wheels. So there's a capital improvement program process. You know, it's really important for people to use the existing processes and procedures and to try to understand what people have influence over and, and what they don't. Understanding how the transportation budget works and that we don't have a big pot of money sitting there and that we do have to be competitive for these grants. Just, you know, things like that will go a long way towards being effective if you at least understand the system that you're trying to work within as opposed to having unreasonable expectations, I think. I think having reasonable expectations have, helps everybody. But on the other hand, sometimes we get caught talking ourselves out of ideas because we think, oh, that'll never work. And there's a perfect example that the Complete Streets Coalition is working on now. The Department of Transportation put out uh, some proposed improvements on North Lake, um, connecting the Lake Avenue Metro Station with the neighborhoods north of there. And you know, when I looked at it, I thought, oh, we could make some minor tweaks around the edges. And folks that I volunteer with at the Complete Streets Coalition were like, no, this is an enormous lost opportunity. This is an incredibly wide roadway. We could do an elevated sidewalk that combines a sidewalk with a bike lane. We could add street trees and we would still, and all we would, we would only lose 35 parking spaces. My group did a parking survey and realized that there's 1800 off street spaces in that same few block area where we would lose the 30, I forget, it's like 35 or 45 on street spaces, 1800 most of which are completely underutilized. So why not take that parking lane, turn it into this extended sidewalk bike lane, 
add street trees and maintain the same number of traffic lanes, totally thinking outside the box and have now revamped DOT's approach and DOT's evaluating that as a possibility. So that's where that kind of not just accepting this is how things work approach is really important as well. So that's why I think you need both. One of the great things about Pasadena is how people are so involved. Um, Is there a nonprofit organization in Pasadena that you're especially proud to be involved with and why is it important to you? Yeah, I mean, obviously the Complete Streets Coalition is something I've been involved with for a long time, but I've recently been invited to join the board of Heritage Housing Partners. And I'm very excited about that. Heritage Housing Partners is a nonprofit that builds affordable home ownership opportunities. It's not an easy thing to do, and they've really created an important niche for themselves at first by looking to retain historic properties that were potentially going to be demolished and then branching out into new construction and now really becoming a leader in the state and showing how uh, these kinds of affordable homeownership opportunities can be financed and managed. And so it's really exciting. There's a development at the corner of Orange Grove and I believe uh, Lincoln uh, that's going to be coming online. That's And then there's going to be another one on Walnut uh, near Allen. And so we're going to, there's already several hundred units that HHP has produced that have been usually first time home buyer opportunities for people in Pasadena who live or work here. And now we're going to add over a hundred more units to that. So it's just great. As we kind of close out our conversation, we've seen some major changes in Pasadena occur over the past over several years, and you've actually been involved in several of them. But when you think about Pasadena's future, what do you think it will look like in 5, 10, or 15 years? I mean, I think the main challenge for Pasadena, I mean, Pasadena is such a special place. It has so many amazing institutions, geography, buildings, trees. I mean, there's just, I mean, we have the Arroyo, we have the Rose Bowl, we have Caltech, we have PCC, we have the Rose Parade. You know, we just, it's its incredible for a city of our size, kind of the, the number of um, like physical spaces and events. We have more nonprofits per capita than any other city of our size. We just have so many amazing um, qualities. And the trick is to try to maintain all of those wonderful amenities and address some of the issues that we have. Um, So for example, um, we have uh, a very high percentage of renters, which I don't think people realized. And we have some real housing affordability issues, both with renting and owning people whose kids grow up here, those kids can rarely afford to buy a house in Pasadena. So that's, you know, something that, you know, I really hope gets addressed. That's more than just a Pasadena problem. That is absolutely a regional problem. But, you know, Pasadena is going to have to do its fair share to try to address that. Things like the city's trees are one of the most fantastic things about Pasadena. But we also need to be looking at, always looking at taking care of the trees we have, getting many, many more trees planted, and also making sure that they're species that support, that can tolerate climate change and can support bird and other wildlife. Um, Because we've had a lot of exotics um, and a lot of trees that just aren't very good in this climate anymore. And so we need to kind of take a look and maybe revamp that. 
so those are the kinds of things that I hope are changes that are we're able to maintain the special qualities and characteristics of Pasadena while really providing some improvements for the people who already live here and the people who might want to come here in the future. I think the one thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about and concerned about is how local politicians are going to be able to meet these larger challenges that we have, right? Like there's only so much the local politician can do, but I worry that um, we're not taking some of our bigger challenges around housing affordability, homelessness, structural racism, climate change. Like these are really big problems. And like, on the one hand, how do you grapple with this as a city elected official? On the other hand, if we don't start grappling with it at the city level, what are we going to do? You know, and I, I, I don't know what it will take to get the folks that I see at city council meetings to try to take these issues more seriously. And I don't mean to condemn all of them in any way. I know that individually they are all concerned about these issues, like absolutely. But there's a really big disconnect, I think, sometimes between what I know privately to be the level of concern around these issues and what they feel like they can do. And it's a question of are the constituents leading or the politicians leading? Like at one point, the leaders kind of have to lead. And I understand I've never had to try to do it. And so I understand that it it must be incredibly difficult. Um, But at some point, in order for us to be tackling these major issues, I think we're going to have to see some more leadership on it. And, you know, I say that with all respect and a great deal of affection for, for so many of our elected official and staff that I've had the privilege of working with. It's easier for me to stand over here and say, this is what I think you need to do. But I am standing over here and saying, this is what I think you need to do. Um, because I don't, I, I don't really see it happening yet. I see opportunities that we have as a city not necessarily being pursued as arduously as possible because people are concerned about backlash and, and, you know, getting voted out of office. And at some point we all need to just, you know, folks who can see these problems clearly need to step up and try, maybe even take a little political heat. And we need to be making some movement on these. Um, We have such potential in Pasadena and I'd love to see it be more realized. Do you think the way our council's made up or just politics in Southern California is made up that we can balance both the kind of filling the potholes kind of stuff and also the big picture items, because it seems like you can either do one or the other. You can't do both very well, if that makes any sense. Yeah. This goes back to what I was saying about, we need resources, the big resources that are way beyond what Pasadena can provide by itself. But we, once we have those resources, we need to be able to use them. I mean, the Metro seven ten dollars the city submitted, I don't know, 15, 20 projects in round one and round two. And the projects that were the project that was selected by Metro for the vast majority of the funds was 230 million out of 235 or something was a gold line grade separation. Now, it's a great idea. If we could wave a magic wand and make the gold line not 
tie up traffic on California, I would be number one in line. I actually do understand why it was considered, but it wasn't considered very thoroughly. And so it turns out that the relative problem that it's trying to solve versus the cost and time and risk to the city of Pasadena, which would have had to make up every dollar that it was a shortfall of over the 230 million, all of a sudden people are really rethinking it. So I'm not saying that it's not a problem that needs to be solved. I'm saying that we have to, if we're looking at a large pot of money like that, we need to maybe look at what are what's the most good for our critical problems like, you know, air quality and climate change versus this, again, real problem, but maybe not worth taking almost every dollar that we have to deal with. No, that's a very good example. For work, we had a project that was near a grade separation in Ontario, and it was done because it was a large truck route, and it made absolute sense to raise the rail line above this established truck route because it was it was serving, you know, millions of square feet of warehouse and distribution space. And I think we all share the frustration of being on California and there's the implications because it's so close to Huntington Hospital. There's issues with that as well. But I agree with you in that the size of that project in particular is problematic because that money could be spent better elsewhere. And, and I think when you, when people, people will open up passing an hour, the passing is, you know, star news or whatever, and they'll see, oh, $200 million for, you know, a bridge, you know, that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. I think the other thing that we really need to think about is the opportunity presented by the 710 stub. If you want to talk about like what I see different in 10 or 15 years, there's this amazing opportunity to extend our old Pasadena district, which is wildly successful and an absolutely wonderful benefit to the city, to extend it and to kind of knit the fabric of the community back together and to create affordable housing and to potentially try to repair some of the damage that was done by the sort of putting freeways through um, neighborhoods that didn't have the political power to object. It's, It's it's something that could solve a whole lot of problems, um, but it's going to really take a lot, a lot of vision, a lot of political capital, a lot of focused effort. And, um, you know, the first part is shaking it loose from, from Caltrans. And, you know, I think that's something that we need our, our um, state and even federal officials to help us work on. And then, um, you know, we need somebody at the city who's got, 10 years to really devote to getting that thing through and making it happen. So I hope that they're, they may already be on it. They may already be planning it that way, but I, you know, that's, I think it's an amazing opportunity. I'd love to see what that looks like in 15 years. Well, I think that's a good, good place to close. Blair, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Like I said, uh, you are a treasure and uh, it's been a pleasure working alongside you as a fellow commissioner. I learned a tremendous amount from you and being around you. And I think Pasadena is stronger because you're so involved. Thank you so much, James. I'm so excited about this podcast that you're doing. Again, my many thanks to Blair for coming on the show. 
If you're interested in learning more about the Pasadena Complete Streets Coalition, please visit them at PasadenaCSC.org. And to support the great work of Heritage Housing Partners, visit them at HHPHousing.org. And thank you for listening. If you're a business owner or community leader and want to share your story, please let me know as I'd love to hear more about you and have you on the show. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss an episode. You can find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Breaker. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show so that others can find it. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram at crowncitypodcast. You've been listening to The Crown City Podcast. And until next time, please remember, stay well, stay positive, and as always, see you around town.